2: Good evening, everyone, and welcome to the season one finale of Experiences Unexplained. My name is Jesse Clark, and I am the host of this show. If you're a new listener to the show, then this is a perfect time to go back and listen to the backlogged episodes. This is episode 20, so you have a little bit of extra episodes that you could take a listen to. And if you are a long-time listener and have been with me from the start of this show, I really do appreciate you guys keeping listening every week and staying with me. And as I announce every week, if you have any sort of strange story or experience that you'd like to talk about or have featured on the show, please call our hotline number at 1-270-290-0900. When you call the hotline, you will be prompted to leave a voicemail of you telling your story. And if you happen to be one of those people that don't feel comfortable having their voice recorded or talking on the phone, that's okay too. You can also visit our website at experiencesunexplained.com and click on the Submit Your Experience tab. Here you can fill out a contact form and you can simply just type out your experience And I will read your story in an episode. You can also just email me directly at experiencesunexplained at gmail.com. Now, as I mentioned, tonight's episode is the season finale for season one. So once this episode airs, there will be about one month hiatus before I come back with season two. And the reason for this is so I can build up a little backlog of new episodes and stories And I also want to have some new guests lined up to have on the show. So now is absolutely the perfect time to reach out to me with your story to have featured in the new season. And I'd also like to mention that it's totally okay to remain anonymous when submitting your story. Some people get weird about being associated with these experiences and they don't want to be judged for it. So if you have a great story and you would like to remain anonymous feel free to do that. Just simply submit your story and don't include your name. And be sure to follow us on our social media accounts. I have a page up on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Here I post exclusive content and photos about the subjects that I talk about in the episodes, and I also make announcements and news about the show. And that's where I will be announcing when season two will be coming out and the show will be making its return. So please go follow those pages to stay in the loop. Now, let's get into the season one finale. And tonight is going to be an awesome episode. Out of all of the strange topics and phenomenon that I talk about and I go down these wormholes, This is probably one of the craziest and most interesting topics to me that I'm going to talk about tonight. And the reason why this is one of the most interesting things to me is because there's literal physical evidence that something strange is going on, yet no one has any idea how to explain it. And I am referring to the mysterious disappearances of people in the U.S. national parks and also across the world. This is a phenomenon that has been going on for literally centuries. Some of these cases date back as far as 1752. Now, you might be thinking, well, what's so strange about people going missing? There's usually something explainable behind it. You know, people get murdered, kidnapped, things of that nature. However, these cases are a little different. Now, before I get into the specifics and the nitty-gritty of these cases and explain why they're so different from regular missing persons cases, I'd like to tell you about the man behind all of this research. David Politis is a former police detective and police officer with over 20 years experience in law enforcement. He also received both an undergraduate and graduate degree from the University of San Francisco. So he definitely seems to have the credentials to look into why people are going missing in these unexplainable ways. But the strange thing is, even though he has all this experience in law enforcement and detective work, even he can explain what is happening to these people. Now, it's important to note that David Politis, as soon as he graduated, didn't just become interested in these missing people cases, and that's where he dedicated his life's work. He originally worked for the San Jose Police Department and worked on the patrol unit and the SWAT team and the street crimes unit. In fact, he wasn't even aware of this missing person problem in the national parks until a park ranger reached out to him when he was on another assignment. David Politis says that this park ranger reached out to him and said he knew, you know, he was a police officer, he knew his background, and he knew he was a writer, and he said, I think you should really look into some of this strange stuff that's going on in our national parks. So David and this park ranger talked for several hours about this phenomenon of people going missing unexplainably in the national parks and the National Park Service not really doing anything about it. You know, of course, in the first several hours and days following someone going missing, there would be a wide search, search and rescue effort. And then once nothing was found after a few days, the search would be ended and then it would be business as usual. And then no one really talked about it anymore. And, you know, that's a big problem with today's society and the mass media. You know, we're fed so much information day in and day out, and the news cycle is just so frequent. There's so much information coming at us constantly. So it's very easy to overlook these crazy details and stories when, you know, the next day, oh, something happens. And then the next day, something even crazier happens. And that's how some of these unique cases and stories fall through the cracks. You know, I've talked about it before, how it seems like there's a new UFO sighting being reported and talked about on the news almost every week now. But where it's so frequent, we've almost become numb to it. So after David Politis spoke with this park ranger and had this conversation about these strange missing cases in our national parks he started connecting dots and looking at cases and trying to figure out what exactly was going on. And one of the strange things about these cases of people going missing in the national parks is that the National Park Service is the agency that has jurisdiction in these parks. Now, there will be some local agencies that help with the efforts of search and rescue, such as state police and local sheriff's departments and even volunteer search and rescue teams. But that search and rescue effort usually only lasts for a couple of days after the person goes missing. Now, when it comes to actually handling the case and keeping record of everything and who's gone missing and the continued search efforts, that's left up to the National Park Service. And there definitely seems to be some sort of secrecy or lack of integrity or corruption within the higher ranks of this National Park Service. Now I'm not talking about the park rangers that you'll interact with and they'll give you tour guides and help you when you visit these parks. For the most part, these park rangers are pretty upstanding individuals, and, you know, they're friendly, they're outgoing, they're here to help you, and they actually enforce the law and make arrests in these parks, so they're there to try to keep the environment safe. I'm referring to the people higher up in the administration who call the shots and who could actually help with these investigations and try to get us some answers with what's going on, but they seem to be hindering some of the investigation. After David Politis learned about this phenomena and he tried to gain information and look into these cases... He filed a Freedom of Information Act request to the National Park Service to try to get a list of all of the missing people cases in the National Park System. Several weeks after he made this request, the National Park Service attorney contacted David and asked why he wanted this information. And within the Freedom of Information Act, it's actually illegal to even ask this question to the person that requested the information. And they can't use that as a determining factor of whether or not they will fulfill the request for the information or not. And when you think about it, it's pretty strange that the National Park Service and their attorney would even be hesitant to release this information. You know, these are people who are still missing till this day, and they should be trying to get to the bottom and trying to get that information out there to try to find these people. You would think if someone reached out to the National Park Service and requested that information and said, hey, I'm doing an investigation into this, I'm an author, I'm wanting to write about this and try to get the information out there to more people and extend the search efforts and try to figure out what's going on, then they would be more than happy to give up that information to try to help. However, that wasn't the case, and David actually was met with quite a bit of resistance from the National Park Service. And since David was met with resistance and they didn't want to give him any information on these missing people cases, he asked for an author's exemption since he was already a published author. After David asks for the author's exemption to try to get this information, a month or so passes, and then the regional coordinator out of the Denver office contacts David, and she tells him that apparently, according to their administration, that his books weren't in enough libraries, so he didn't qualify for an author's exemption through the Freedom of Information Act. Now, this isn't common practice when filing for a Freedom of Information Act. It shouldn't be this difficult, especially when the information that he's trying to get isn't even something that should be this confidential. And the National Park Service went as far as to saying that they don't even keep a list of people who go missing in their national parks. And This just doesn't even make sense. You know, this is the agency that is responsible for the safety and well-being of the people and tourists that visit their parks. So why wouldn't they keep a list documented of those who have gone missing on the property? In fact, the National Park Service keeps a list of all the movies that have been produced and shot on their property. So why wouldn't they keep a list of people who have gone missing and never been found there? So obviously at this point, David realizes they're not going to cooperate, but he asks them, you know, what will it cost me to get these lists? What will I have to do in order to get this information? And they told him they would get back to him and figure out what it would take. A few weeks go by and then they contact David and they said if he just wanted a list for the Yosemite National Park, it would cost $34,000. And then they went on to say if he wanted a list for the entire system of all the people who have gone missing in the national parks, it would cost $1.4 million for this report. This is an insane amount of money for a report that this park service should have already had on hand to begin with. And the reasoning behind this is because they would have to pay someone to look into all the files and put the report together, and it just seems like an astronomical number. And that's not where the madness ends, because David continued to make requests and tried to get more information The National Park Service listed David as a "quote unquote" commercial requester, and because he was listed as this, it quadrupled the fees associated with his requests. And in fact, he was quoted $7,500 just for one report of a single case in the Rocky Mountain Park. How in the world is this possible? If He's just requesting one single report about one person going missing in this area. Why would it cost $7,500? And honestly, what I think it comes down to is they don't want this information to get out because these rural areas where these national parks are, they highly depend on the money that's brought in from tourism. And having this information out of people going missing and never being found That would really do some damage to their tourism. But anyways, as you guys can see, before even discussing the details of these missing person cases, there's already some fishy stuff going on within the National Park Service and the search efforts for these people. So now that you have a little bit of background about David Politis and how he got into this topic, let's actually touch on what makes these missing person cases so special and different from other regular missing person cases and what's really going on here. So obviously not everyone who goes missing is considered unexplainable in these national parks. There are people who go missing who are later found and there's a plausible explanation. There are some cases where people just legitimately get lost and they take a wrong turn somewhere and they head in the wrong direction. You know, this happens when you're out there in the wilderness. A lot of things in the surroundings just all look the same. So those who are directionally challenged and aren't experienced enough in hiking and hunting, it's pretty easy to get lost. But as David Politis started looking into these missing person cases, he came across a lot of different cases that just didn't make sense. There was a lot of things that didn't add up. As David started really digging into all these missing person cases, he noticed the cases that weren't explainable had some very similar correlations with one another, and he started making these profile points. And this allowed him to easily kind of filter through the cases and determine if this was a case that he should look further into. So some of these profile points include a point of separation. So this is the moment that the person who went missing separated from the group that they were traveling with. You know, oftentimes in these missing person cases, they were with a group of people, but at the point that they split up and separate, That's when the person goes missing, when they're by themselves. There was also a correlation with the time of day these people disappeared. It's often found that these people who are never found and unexplainably just vanish seem to disappear around mid-afternoon to late afternoon, around 4 or 5 p.m. There's also usually a presence of granite boulders or rock fields in the area or near the area in which the person goes missing. Now this might seem like a strange detail to include, but I have talked about on this show before about how certain materials and such as granite seem to have some sort of energy or something weird going on with them. Another one of these common profile points is when the search and rescue efforts begin and they bring in canines to try to find a scent and track these people, the dogs can't find a scent. Sometimes the dogs just circle around or they just lay down or they just can't find the scent. And this is highly unusual because these are very well trained canines and it's literally what they've been bred for. You know, dogs' sense of smell is extremely powerful. There are canine units who are used as cadaver dogs that look for buried bodies and can actually smell bacteria from decomposing bodies. And of course, within the police force, canines are also used to help track down drugs and drug smuggling within vehicles and areas, so... The fact that these canines can't find a scent to even start tracking these people, even when they have personal items to start their scent trail, it's pretty strange. Another profile point that's included within these cases is the people usually go missing near some sort of body of water, whether it be a creek, a river, or some sort of large body of water. And to even go a little further on that, sometimes the people who are found and their bodies are found, they're sometimes found within a body of water, but it's as if their body has only been in the water for a short amount of time, not within the entire amount of time that they have been missing. You know, it wouldn't be that strange or hard to explain if someone had been missing for a few days and they suspected they drowned, and then they eventually found their body in a body of water, and their body was badly decomposed and bloated from being in the water for several days. However, when they are found, and it's only as if the body had been in the water for a few hours, that definitely raises some questions. Which leads me to the next profile point, and that is oftentimes if a body is found, the coroner can't always come up with a cause of death. After the coroner performs an autopsy, it's often found that they can't really come to a conclusion of how this person died. Oftentimes there's no significant body injuries or sign of any animal attack or human attack, and it's just it's strange. They can't come to a determining factor of how the person passed away. And in the few cases where the person's actually found alive, they're examined by a medical examiner and they're not found to have any sort of medical problems that would have led them to going missing, such as psychosis or something like that. Another one of these profile points is shortly after the person goes missing there's usually some sort of weather event. It can be anything as small as a slight dust storm for the cases in the desert areas or it can be large thunderstorms or a massive winter storm that comes in shortly after the person goes missing. But there definitely seems to be a notable difference and change in the weather after these people go missing. The next profile point is oftentimes those who go missing have some sort of disability or illness. Now, this can range from a really significant disability that wouldn't allow them to travel very far or it can also be something very minor such as like a sprained knee or something that happened a few days before going missing. Another strange correlation within these cases is the victims often missing clothing. If the body's found, they're usually found partially clothed or naked, or sometimes when the body's not found at all, sometimes some of the articles of clothing are found. Now you might be thinking, this isn't all that strange. If they were attacked by an animal or something, some of their clothes would probably get ripped off. But what is strange is often when the articles of clothing are found, it's as if the person just sort of took them off and set them there to be found. And when you really think about it, if you get lost out in the wilderness, everything that you have on you needs to be saved and used as a tool. Especially clothing items such as your shoes. If you have to walk out in the wilderness, you're stepping over rugged terrain such as rocks and logs and sticks. Like, you don't want to be walking barefoot. And it's really strange when bodies are found completely naked. You know, they'll be out in hypothermic conditions and cold weather, yet they're found with no clothing on whatsoever. And another strange profile point within these missing person cases is there's usually geographical clusters in which multiple people go missing in the same area. David Politis said he's documented over 59 geographical locations in which there have been multiple people disappear in the same area in a short amount of period of time. And lastly, and perhaps maybe one of the strangest Profile points of these cases is when people are found, they're found in areas that have been searched multiple and multiple times. And this is just simply unexplainable. There are professional search and rescue technicians and agencies out there. They're using dogs, they're using people on the ground searching, helicopters, infrared cameras, and the people are searching on the ground, shoulder to shoulder, in grid patterns, combing through these areas only for these people to be found later on in an area that's been searched time and time again. And there was one instance where searchers were taking the same trail in and out of the location where the victim was last located, and they went over this trail hundreds of times, in and out. And on one of the days where the searchers were going into the area, they noticed a down tree along the path. And then they saw the body of the young victim just laying there on the freshly down tree. It was as if the body had been placed there on purpose to be found the next day. And to me, this is just impossible to explain pretty much. You know, they were using the same trail to go in and out of this area. That tree wasn't down the day before. And then the bodies just found on top of this down tree. I don't know, it just doesn't make sense, and that's what makes these cases so special. Things just don't add up about them. So now that we have talked about what makes these cases so special, let's try to dive in into some specific cases and really dig into some of the details. The first case I'd like to talk about is a young man named Morgan Heimer. Morgan was only 22 when he went missing, and he went missing on June 8th of 2015 and the location in which he went missing was along the Colorado River within the Grand Canyon National Park around 4 p.m. near the River Mile 213 near Pumpkin Springs. Morgan was actually working as a tour guide with the company known as Tour West in the Grand Canyon area. And although Morgan was fairly young at just the age 22, he was knowledgeable about the outdoors, and he obviously enjoyed the outdoors because he became a tour guide to help tour the Grand Canyon. And when he went missing, he was actually with two other tour guides and around a group of 15 other tourists. And I believe the day he went missing was actually day six of an eight-day-long tour guide trip. And this area that he went missing, known as Pumpkin Springs, was actually a place where they always stopped on these tours. Pumpkin Springs gets its name because it's a huge rock that looks hollowed out like a pumpkin, and it's a spring that people and the tourists can actually swim in. So on this tour, they would always park their raft on the river in the same location and then walk up a little trail up to Pumpkin Springs. And this area, obviously it's in the Grand Canyon, so there's not much place to roam. There's high canyon walls and there's just one trail leading in and out. And the area in which they parked the raft, the river is not really deep here. It's only like waist high, so there's really not any places to hide or anything like that even within the body of water. And when Morgan was last seen, he was wearing a blue plaid shirt. He was wearing shorts, had a life preserver vest on, and was wearing flip-flops. So what had happened was they were visiting the springs. Everyone had been swimming. And then they started to walk back in a line on the trail back to the raft to continue their tour. And Morgan Heimer was actually in the back of the line of the group of people walking back towards the raft. And they looked back and it was just as if he had vanished. This case is extremely weird. It's as if Morgan just vanished out of thin air. He was traveling within a large group of people in an area that they always visited on these tours and it's just like as if he had been deleted out of existence. Now, some people may suggest, well, maybe there was someone in the area that kidnapped him and took him away, but... As I mentioned, there's one way in and one way out, and it's through a canyon with high walls. There's nowhere really to hide, so it's, it would be hard for someone to just kidnap someone and take them away. Others might argue that maybe Morgan fell into the river and drowned. However, he was wearing a life preserver vest when he was last seen, and as I mentioned, the river wasn't really high at the point where they were visiting. And after Morgan was reported missing, there was a six-day search, and they also searched the river, and he was nowhere to be found. Not even a sign of him was ever found. Not a piece of clothing, nothing. And what's really strange is that Morgan had just been talking to people prior to him disappearing. You know, they were traveling in a group, having conversation along the way, and then it was, they looked back, and he was just gone. And this next case has some eerie similarities to the Morganheimer case. 20-year-old Christopher Tompkins disappeared on January 25th of 2002 while he was working in an area right off of Country Line Road near Highway 85 in Ellersla, Georgia. And Christopher Tompkins was actually a land surveyor and he had met up with his crew around 8:10 a.m. that morning. And they were working and surveying the land in a slightly wooded area. And they were a four man crew. And while they were working in this wooded area, they were walking single file in a line with about 50 feet in between them. And the crew had all been talking to one another. You know, there wasn't that much distance in between them, only 50 feet or so. And Christopher literally had just been talking to the guy in front of him moments before he disappeared. The man that was in front of Christopher turned around to look back at him as if to continue conversation, and it was as if he just vanished. And it wasn't immediately that the crew jumped to conclusions and thought something was wrong. You know, Chris was 20 years old. They were working in a small crew. It was just a lightly wooded area, so there wasn't really that many places for him to hide. Maybe they thought maybe he just walked off for a minute. So they started to call out for Christopher and search the area once they noticed he wasn't around. And once they searched the area for an hour or so, they found a fence that had barbed wire on the top. And on top of the fence, hooked on the barbed wire, was actually one of Christopher's work boots. And at the foot of the fence, there was a pile of change, Christopher's work equipment, and also a little piece of his work pants was on the fence. It was almost as if something had drug him across that barbed wire fence and his boot got caught and all of his stuff was just laying there. And when you think about it, in order for pocket change to be found at the bottom of the fence, he would have had to have been turned upside down for his pockets to be emptied onto the ground. So once his work crew members found this, they called the authorities and then an official search began. However, Christopher was never found. And some people have actually criticized his work crew members for waiting so long to call the authorities. But like I said, I can kind of understand, you know, they were on the job, they were working. They didn't think Chris would just walk away and run off. You know, they had a job to do. And some people even accuse his work members of maybe killing him out there and doing away with his body. But It doesn't seem like his crew members had any sort of problem with Christopher and they were just as concerned as his family was that he was missing. And strangely enough, a few months later after Christopher disappeared, a farmer actually found the other work boot of Christopher's 900 yards away from where Christopher disappeared on the farmer's property. So there's a lot of questions that are raised with this case. You know, he was engaged in conversation just moments before he disappeared. And if something or someone took Christopher away and drug him away, how is there no noise? How did the workers not hear him struggling or maybe yell for help? And if Christopher was attacked by something or someone, why was there not really any sign of struggle? There was no blood, and if he was drug over barbed wire fence, you would think there would be some sort of sign or trail that the searchers would have found. but it's literally as if he just in a blink of an eye vanished. I don't know man it's uh it's pretty spooky stuff that people can just unexplainably disappear it just, it doesn't seem plausible. The next case that I'd like to talk about is 61-year-old Melvin Nadell, who went missing on September 6th of 2009. And Melvin actually disappeared in the Santa Fe National Forest while he was elk hunting near Elk Mountain. And Melvin had went out to go elk hunting with two of his friends from work, And he arrived at the campsite. They had already set up camp and he arrived there around 4 p.m. And just a few days before going on this elk hunt, Melvin had actually hurt his knee because he stepped into a gopher hole while doing target practice. So Melvin told his friends he wasn't going to hike all the way up the mountain. He was just going to hunt near the proximity of camp. And in fact, he set up a temporary blind in a tree line just a 100 or 150 yards away from their camp. Melvin's two other friends continued in the opposite direction and actually proceeded up towards the peak of the mountain. Once the evening settled in and it started to get dark, his buddies actually returned to camp, but Melvin was nowhere to be found. They searched the area, they started calling out, and they just couldn't find any sign of Melvin anywhere. His vehicle was still parked at camp. All of his belongings were there that he didn't take with him while he was hunting. And it was just as if he left to go hunt and never came back. And as I mentioned, he didn't venture far from camp at all. 150 yards, that's one and a half football fields away. So it shouldn't have been that hard to try to locate Melvin. But after his buddies failed to find him, after calling out for him, they contacted authorities and the New Mexico State Police led a search and rescue. There were dozens of people on the ground, two helicopters, multiple canine teams, and the search lasted for six days. And they found absolutely nothing. The canines did find the makeshift blind that Melvin had made inside of the tree line, but that was it. And when they searched Melvin's vehicle, they also noticed that he left behind in his vehicle his GPS device. So it's clear that Melvin had no intention of going far at all. He was in eyesight of the camp. Now some might speculate that Melvin may have shot an elk and he had to go out and try to find the elk, but I don't think he would have really gone after an elk very far if he didn't even go along with his friends to proceed up the mountain especially when you take into account that he had that knee injury where he had stepped into that gopher hole a few days before. And what's strange is that Melvin was armed. He had a bow and he also had a sidearm with him and none of these items were found. His backpack, none of his hunting supplies, nothing was ever found. And this is one of those cases where there actually seems to be a geographical cluster of people going missing in the same location. There is a man named Stanley Vigil, age 54, who went missing November 7th, 2017, and he actually disappeared only 10 miles southeast from where Melvin's location of disappearance in an area known as Barilla's Peak. Stanley was also a hunter, and he was hunting for deer in the area. And apparently he was driving down a road, and he spots a deer. And he gets out and chases the deer. And as soon as he gets out, rain and and a significant amount of fog starts to roll in. And he just disappears. And there's a seven-day search, and nothing is found. However, exactly five months later, on April 7th of 2018... He disappeared November 7th. So exactly five months later, the body of Stanley Vigil was found by an off-duty police officer who was fishing with his son. And his body was actually found nine miles away from the point of separation. Stanley's wife Darcy was told by police that Stanley had drowned and showed signs of head trauma and broken ribs. But even though Stanley's body ended up being found... Perhaps this leaves more questions than answers. If Stanley really did get lost out there, why would he travel nine miles only to end up drowning in a river? And these stories about hunters that go missing are all the more fascinating because they're usually armed and they know how to survive out there in the outdoors and they're experienced outdoorsmen. Some of these things just don't really add up. And one of the things that don't add up is this geographical cluster of people going missing in this area. There have been 15 people gone missing in the same New Mexico-Santa Fe cluster. Another case in this area involves a 75-year-old lady named Audrey Kaplan, who went missing July 30th of 2014. And her and her husband are actual locals to the area and she disappeared while they were both picking mushrooms near the ski resort. They were in an area that was well known for mushrooms and a lot of people went here to pick these mushrooms and at some point they just somehow got separated. And once her husband realized that she was nowhere around, he started calling out and looking for her and then storms started to roll in after she had disappeared. They continued to search that night, and then a search and rescue effort continued for several days. On the fifth day of the search, her body was actually discovered 1.2 miles away from where she was last seen. And what's strange about this case is how her body was found. One of the people who were searching for her noticed that they saw what looks like a little destroyed campsite, and it was near a creek. And in the creek was actually where they found her body, and she was naked and in the fetal position in the creek. And another strange piece of this puzzle is the autopsy report. And the autopsy quotes, Although there is no specific autopsy findings to indicate hypothermia, the circumstances of Miss Kaplan's death and lack of fatal disease at autopsy support cold exposure due to very low temperatures at night. So there were no specific findings in her autopsy to determine that it was hypothermia, but they're just saying that it was because it was cold at night. And another strange thing about her autopsy report, it says given that there is no report of the descendants face being in the water when found nor circumstances documented to support that it had been in the water it is unlikely that drowning played a role however when you look at the crime scene photos of where her body was found and how it was found she was literally fetal position with her head in the creek now i'm not saying that audrey kaplan did drown But it's strange that the autopsy report didn't make the connection between the crime scene photos and the fact that she was found in the creek. So when you look at this case, it has a lot of those profile points. There was a point of separation where she separated from her husband, and then there was a weather event where storms rolled in, and then she was found with missing clothing, and then there was no real plausible cause of death in the autopsy report. And she was also found in that body of water, the creek, and also the geographical cluster in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where all of these people have seemed to just vanish. And that's what's so odd with all of these cases. There's so many similarities, yet there's no explanation. Now, given the fact that I'm from Kentucky, I couldn't help but to include one case that happened here in my home state. And it's a little strange because there's not really all that many cases from the state of Kentucky, although there are quite a few cases from Ohio, Tennessee, Indiana, all of the bordering states. But there really isn't all that many cases from here, but I'm okay with that. It makes me feel a little more comfortable when I'm out hiking. However, there are some strange cases that have happened here. For example, 57-year-old Anthony Wayne Erisman, who went missing on May 6th of 2016, and he went missing on Alderholt Road in Wayne County, Kentucky. And Anthony was actually a resident of Somerset, Kentucky, and he had a one-room cabin off of Alderholt Road, 15 miles south of Somerset. And this location is only a quarter mile away from the Big South Fork of the Cumberland River. And when the weather was nice, his family would drop him off at his cabin. He'd spend some time up there. He was a spelunker. He liked to go and visit different caves in the area. But there was one particular cave near his cabin that he loved to spend time in and go to. On May 6th, some of his friends went to go check on Anthony at the cabin. But they noticed that he wasn't at the cabin. And that's when a search and rescue effort began to try to locate Anthony. And his friends knew of this certain cave that he liked to spend a lot of time in. So they began to search this cave on May 8th. And right at the entrance of the cave, they actually find Anthony's toboggan and one of his flashlights. Now his friends knew that whenever he visited caves and explored, he always carried two candles and two different flashlights. And there seemed to be a trail of his belongings actually leading through the cave. Next, they found his hoodie that had been ripped to shreds. And sadly, they then found the body of 57-year-old Anthony. He was lying down only 200 feet inside of the cave, and he was nearly naked, only wearing one boot and his hard hat. Now, the strange thing is, despite his hoodie being ripped to shreds, there was no body injury to Anthony. The coroner report found that maybe he died of hypothermia. But the thing is, Anthony knew this cave very well, and he was only 200 feet into the cave. Anthony was a very experienced spelunker, and he knew that temperatures in caves dropped down, so why would he just remove his clothing and simply just lay down and die? And if he did die of hypothermia, that takes some time for hypothermia to take over the body. None of these details seem to make sense. Why would Anthony not just walk out of the cave and go back to his cabin? It was within walking distance, and he was only 200 feet into the cave. And how or what would rip his hoodie into shreds? And where was the rest of his clothing and possessions? They didn't find any of the candles he usually brought with him and only found one of his flashlights. And the fact that they found his flashlight at the entrance of the cave would mean that Anthony would have proceeded into the cave without any source of light. And even an inexperienced spelunker knows not to keep going into a cave without any source of light. So I don't know, it seems as though this case doesn't make sense at all. And even the people who knew Anthony and the ones that discovered his body said the things that they found didn't make sense at all. So again, here's one of these cases where they found the body, but they really didn't get that many answers. So, so far, I've only talked about some cases where they ended up finding a body, or they just didn't find the person at all. So how about we lighten the mood up and actually tell about some cases where they did find the victims. But don't be misled. These cases are no less bizarre than the ones that I've talked about before. 11-year-old Michael Dixon disappeared on April 28, 1987 at 2.45 a.m. in Danville, Illinois. And geographically, Danville, Illinois sits on the Indiana border with the Wabash River going through the center of the community. And Danville also has Lake Vermilion on its northwest border and the Kickapoo State Recreation Area in its west. And Michael Dixon lived on 529 East Madison Street in Danville. And the residence sits close to two notable landmarks. Stony Creek is behind the residence and empties into the Wabash River and the City Railroad Yard on the opposite side of the creek. On April 27, 1987 at 10 p.m., Dorothea Dixon, the mother of Michael, actually started putting all her kids to bed. And shortly after putting Michael to bed she checked on him he was asleep. And then Miss Dixon went to sleep herself. That is until she was woken up by a call at two forty five AM. And the phone call was actually from the police department in Peru, Indiana, over a hundred miles away from their residence. And they asked Miss Dixon, where her son Michael was, and she said he's asleep in bed. And they said we actually have him here in Peru. And they notified Miss Dixon that her son was being treated at the hospital in Peru for minor cuts on his feet because he was actually found barefoot. Now, another strange part of this story is that Michael doesn't remember anything. His mother, Miss Dixon, claimed that he would sleepwalk occasionally. But I find it hard to believe that he would be able to cover this kind of ground in a sleepwalking state. It's very hard to believe that an 11-year-old kid slept in the middle of the night a 100 miles away in 4 hours and 45 minutes. Now the Peru police speculated that Michael must have hopped onto a train and then exited the rail car once he reached Peru. But as I mentioned, this city has two major waterways running through it, and one of them being a creek right behind Michael's residence that he would have had to pass through to get to the train railroad. And they noted that he was a little bit dirty, but they didn't say anything about being muddy or his clothes being wet or any of that. They just said he was barefoot and a little dirty. Now, the fact that Michael didn't remember how he got to Peru, he thought he was still in his hometown, and he doesn't recall anything from that night, it's pretty odd. And even if he did use a train to get there, he would have had to go through that creek, find an empty rail car, hop onto a moving train while being in a sleepwalking state, riding on the train a 100 miles away, and then exiting the train safely and ending up in Peru, all while being asleep and not remembering any of it. And this is just a strange case. However, it's not the only case that's kind of like this. There are several different cases where there are small or young children that travel in an impossible distance in a short amount of time. And I'm talking about long distances that even a full-grown adult would struggle to accomplish in such a short amount of time and also when you take into the type of rugged terrain that they would have had to walk through. Let me give you another example. Eight-year-old Gary McCarthy disappeared on August twentieth, 1950, in the afternoon in Oracle, Arizona. And as the story goes, Gary McCarthy and his father, Tim, were actually out shooting guns. Gary had a little BB gun, and his father, Tim, actually had a small caliber rifle. And apparently, Tim, his father, ended up shooting a rabbit, and Gary brought the rabbit back to camp to his mother. And according to a newspaper article from the Tucson Daily Citizen from August 22, 1950, They say that Gary's mother told him, don't go away because dinner is nearly ready. But Gary didn't listen to his mother and he actually heard his father's voice, so he strolled off away from camp. And he walked and walked, but he never ran into his father. And Gary's parents searched for him for two hours before one of them drove to Florence, where they contacted the penal county sheriff, Lynn Early. Once the sheriff was contacted, they sent several mounted officers to the area to search, and they even got some bloodhounds from the local state prison. And there were also six airplanes doing flyovers trying to find some sort of sign of the boy and locate him. And the next day, temperatures got extremely high, well over 100 degrees, and it was so hot that even the bloodhounds had to be taken off the trail and things were not looking good for 8-year-old Gary McCarthy. And this area is a hot and dry desert area with very little sun protection and coverage from trees. Now, it's a little bit of a gray area of determining exactly how long Gary was missing. Some articles say 27 hours, some say 30. But one article from Lottie News Sentinel. Reported, young Gary wandered off yesterday morning while his father, Timothy, was inspecting an abandoned mine shaft. Sheriff Lynn Early said the boy wandered 35 miles through the cactus-studded desert in heat that reached 110 degrees. He was found this afternoon by Deputy Sheriff Red Kinsey, one of the posse of a 100 men that combed the region for 12 hours. Now, I find it very unlikely that an 8-year-old boy traveled 35 miles in 100 to 110 degrees heat in the desert. In heat so hot that even the bloodhounds had to be taken off the trail. And Gary was actually taken to the hospital and treated, but the only thing he was treated for was blisters on his feet. Now, there is one strange claim that Gary made, according to an article in the Albany Democrat. And the article states, Gary, apparently suffering from delusions induced by thirst and the heat, said he believed he had been lost for two and a half days, and he told of a man who was trying to give him water. Now, this is a pretty strange piece to the puzzle. If Gary did come across the man in the desert, I wouldn't doubt that the man would help the kid out and give him some water, but why wouldn't he help the kid further and get him to safety and turn him into the police? Now, this could be a true claim, or maybe it's false, but it just doesn't make sense to me. And another strange piece to this story is that Gary claimed that he actually slept at night. So, he wasn't traveling the whole time that he was missing. He was actually sleeping at night. So he would have had to cover quite a bit of ground in extreme conditions during the day. It's just a really strange case. Anytime you have a case where a young child travels an ungodly amount of distance that even an adult would have trouble traveling it starts to raise some questions. And any of you out there listening that have children, you know their physical capabilities, and you know they're not willing to walk that type of distance. Even if you're going around shopping all day in a mall or something, they start to complain about walking. And that's in a comfortable environment in air-conditioned buildings. So you can only imagine how Gary would have been feeling if he was out there in the desert all that time walking 35 miles. Now, I have just two more cases that I'd like to talk about tonight, but I saved these two cases for last because there's just a lot to unpack in these two stories. And this first one also has to do with a young child. Six-year-old Dennis Martin went missing on June Fourteenth, 1969. And it had actually been Father's Day, and him, his father, his brother, and his grandfather had been visiting the Great Smoky Mountains National Park in Tennessee. And the area that Dennis actually disappeared from is known as Spencefield. Dennis and his brother had actually been playing in Spencefield, and then the parents of another family came up to Mr. Martin, their father, and asked if it was okay if their kids played along with them. And of course, Mr. Martin had no objections to this and agreed that it was okay if the two families played together. So the group of kids decided that they wanted to play hide-and-seek. So as the game goes, one of the other kids were counting while all the rest of the kids went and hid. And Mr. Martin watched Dennis go hide behind this bush or tree, and then he never took his eyes off the tree. He just waited to see if Dennis was going to be found or not. Well, as the game goes, once someone was found, everyone else comes out and they reveal themselves. Well, once the game was over and everyone was supposed to come out, Dennis never came out from behind the tree. Now, Mr. Martin swears he watched Dennis go behind this tree and he never took his eyes off the tree. So how is it possible that Dennis just went behind a tree and never came out the other side? Well, at first, Mr. Martin thought maybe his son Dennis was just being goofy and refusing to come out. So Mr. Martin goes up to the tree and discovers that Dennis is nowhere to be found. It's almost as if his son had just walked through a portal and vanished or something behind this tree. And it just so happens that this tree was right beside the Appalachian Trail, and Mr. Martin just immediately started running non stop for two miles down the trail looking for Dennis, only to come up empty. It's important to note that this occurred around 4 p.m., And it actually started to rain and didn't stop raining for one and a half weeks after this happened. So here again, we have another correlation between these profile points. There was a point of separation when he started playing hide and seek. And they're near boulders and granite rock in the park. And it started to rain. A weather event happened right after the disappearance And it also occurred around mid-afternoon to late afternoon around 4 p.m. And of course, there are several rivers and bodies of water that are nearby and run through this national park. Well, after Mr. Martin proceeded down the trail for two miles and couldn't find his son, he came back and told his father to go get help and that they needed to form some search and rescue efforts. And Dennis's disappearance actually led to one of the greatest search and rescue efforts to ever be put together in that area till this day. There were over 1,400 searchers and they covered 56 square miles. Now that's quite a bit of land that was covered to just try to find a six-year-old who had just recently gone missing in an area where his father was literally watching him play as he disappeared. But as we heard in the previous cases, it doesn't seem outside the realm of possibility that this kid could be traveling that far away. Now, if all of this isn't strange enough, here's where things start to get pretty weird. The Federal Bureau of Investigations, otherwise known as the FBI, actually sent an agent here to quote-unquote monitor the case and he teamed up with a park ranger who also, quote-unquote, was just monitoring the case. Now, according to FBI protocol, the FBI does not track missing adults, and they only get involved with missing children cases when there seems to be a mysterious circumstance. Now, after a few days of searching and not coming up with anything, The Green Berets actually flew in and set up their own telecommunications camp and started to search themselves. Now the strange thing about the Green Berets getting involved is that they were helicoptered in and they set up their own camp, but they refused to get any help from anyone else or assist anyone. They demanded that they be left alone and they would just work by themselves. Now, this is highly unusual when it comes to a search and rescue effort. You know, everyone there has a common goal. They're there to find the person that's missing. So why would the Green Berets act this way? And why is there a special FBI agent there who's just monitoring the search and not assisting with the search itself? And David Politis actually filed a Freedom of Information Act request with the United States Army, to try to figure out if the Green Berets discovered anything or what they found while they were there searching. And he actually made two different requests, and he never got a single response from either one of these requests. The Green Berets only stuck around for a week, and then they packed up and they left. Now another strange part of this story involves another family with the last name Key, K-E-Y, the Key family. And coincidentally, they happen to be a key piece to this story. Well, the Key family had stopped a park ranger and asked if there was a certain area within the park where they could possibly come across a bear because they wanted to have a sighting of a bear. And the ranger directed them towards an area known as Rowan's Creek. And this is located about 2,000 feet south of where Dennis disappeared. And so they proceed to this area of Rowan's Creek, and while they're going up the hill and they're kind of just observing the area, they hear this sickening scream, and they describe it louder than anything they've ever heard before. And their son looks up into the direction of the scream, and he points out to what he thought was a bear running through the trees. But his father said it looked more like a man hiding behind the trees and watching them. Now, this sighting actually took place just about an hour or so after Dennis had gone missing, and the Key family had no idea about the child that had gone missing in the area, and they weren't even from the area. They were actually from Knoxville. So they were just like, okay, whatever, that was a strange incident, but they turned around, packed up, and they went home. And it wasn't until the next day, once they saw the front page paper, that they realized that there was a missing child in that area. So once they're back in Knoxville and they see this front page news, the Key family immediately calls the National Park Service to offer help and give them the information of their sighting and their incident. They even offered to drive back to the park and show the rangers and the FBI exactly where they were when they had the sighting and what they saw. Now, what's strange about this is how the National Park Service and FBI responded to this. They actually told them, no, don't come back to the park. We will meet you in Knoxville and we will have a discussion. Now, the sketchy thing about this is that Mr. Martin, Dennis's dad, had not left the park for six weeks while they were looking for Dennis. He stayed there and he wanted to know every single detail about the search efforts and what people saw or what they found. And this is exactly why the National Park Service and FBI wanted to meet the Key family outside of the park so they could keep this information away from Mr. Martin. Now, just by coincidence, there was another reporter that happened to overhear the Key family giving this interview in Knoxville and they actually told Mr. Martin about this interview and informed him about what the key family said they saw on the same day his son had disappeared in just the short amount of time after his son had gone missing. And when Mr. Martin confronted the FBI and the National Park Service about why this information was kept from him, they said the timeline didn't match up between the time Dennis disappeared and the time that the Key family saw this incident take place. However, the lead tracker for the National Park Service and Mr. Martin walked that distance, and it was easily done within the hour and a half between the disappearance of Dennis and the sighting of the Key family. It just made no sense that the FBI kept this information from Mr. Martin. And needless to say, Mr. Martin was just pissed, and he just felt completely defeated because the one agency that was supposed to be in charge of helping him find his son was lying to his face and keeping facts away from him. Sadly, to this day, Dennis has never been found. And David Politis actually tracked down Dennis's family and his father and mother had still lived in the same house that they lived in at the time of this disappearance. And David Politis knocked on the front door, and Mr. Martin opened the door, and he didn't want to talk about his son's disappearance. He said that this day ruined his and his wife's life, it ruined their family, and he just agreed with his wife that he would never talk about it again. But once David Politis kind of explained to Mr. Martin that he came all the way from California. He's an author that writes about these missing person cases that go unsolved. And he just said that, you know, I know a lot about this topic and I think I can help. Mr. Martin closed the door and stepped out onto the porch to have a few words with him. And David Politis asked Mr. Martin, is there anything that the news media has not covered that could help me with solving this case and he said yeah there actually is. Mr. Martin stated that there are actually these individuals who live off the grid inside of that park and that they are like these wildling wild men individuals who just live off the land and they wear furs from animals that they've killed within the park and they just commit these petty crimes within the park. And in fact, one of the park rangers had actually been attacked and gotten into a fight with one of these wildlings inside the park just a few months prior to Dennis disappearing. And Mr. Martin continued to say that in the key family testimony, they stated that it looked like this man or this bear looking creature looked like it had something slung over its shoulder. Now some people like to speculate that maybe it was like a Bigfoot or Sasquatch that took Dennis and that's what the Key family saw that day. But is it possible that it was actually one of these wild men living in the National Park dressed in fur and had Dennis slung over his shoulder? That definitely seems like it could be a possibility. However, it is a little odd that the largest search and rescue effort to ever be done in that area didn't uncover any clues about Dennis's whereabouts. Even if it had been a human being that took Dennis away, I feel like they would have found something. And the fact that the Key family described the scream that they heard as something louder than they've ever heard before leads me to believe that maybe it was something inhuman. Now there's one last piece of information that Mr. Martin told David Politis and that was that there were 12 other missing people that had gone missing in that area and the same FBI agent handled all of those missing person cases and not only that but that FBI agent later on ended up committing suicide. Now I hate to speculate and I like to just look at facts but it is actually a fact that this agent did handle all those cases and that he did in fact commit suicide, but we just don't know what led him to take his own life. Was it something that he uncovered while looking at these cases of missing people, or was it something more personal? I'm not sure, but it is a very strange coincidence. Now for the last case that I'd like to talk to you guys about tonight. Aaron Hedges, age 38, went missing on September 7th, 2014, and he went missing while going on an elk hunt with his friends in a place known as the Crazy Mountains in Sweetgrass County, Montana. And the Crazy Mountains is an isolated island of mountains near the Yellowstone River, and there's several different stories and legends of why they're called the Crazy Mountains, Some claim that the Native Americans from the Crow tribe put a curse on the mountains, but that's not really important and a little irrelevant to this case. But it should be noted that there's several houses and towns surrounding the crazy mountains, and it really isn't too hard to find your way out of it, even though it is a very rugged terrain. But on September 3rd, Aaron Hedges drove up Cottonwood Bench Road with some friends and they loaded gear up at a parking area and left for a week-long hunting trip to Campfire Lake. And because these mountains do have rugged terrain, you do have to go in like horseback and they actually took two horses and a mule. But on the way to their camp, they actually had a horse wreck and they lost most of Aaron's camping supplies. But it wasn't that big of a deal because Aaron would hunt that area every other weekend and they even had some caches of supplies that had been stored throughout the area. So they were okay to just continue on with their trip and they would supply up later. So the group of friends and Aaron ended up staying at Campfire Lake for two days. Then Aaron leaves the camp on September 5th at 10 a.m., and he was going to head up a trail and go to Sunlight Lake, where they had a cache of supplies stored. At 5 p.m., Aaron's friends still hadn't seen Aaron, so they radioed him. And the radios that they were using was a fancy Garmin type of radio, and it actually showed on the screen the GPS location of the person that you were radioing with. And according to that GPS location, Aaron went the wrong direction at the split of a trail, and he was actually just at the edge of the monitor. They could barely see his GPS location. But given that Aaron was a seasoned hunter and he hunted that area every other weekend, he knew it very well, so the friends were not that worried. However, on September 7th, a snowstorm moved in, And that forced the friends out of the area, and then they had to go for help to try to help find Aaron. And this was a significant snowstorm. There was 18 to 24 inches of snow that fell within 12 hours, and the temperatures dropped from 50 degrees from when Aaron left the camp all the way down to the teens. So the friends contact the Sweetgrass County Sheriff's Department, and because of the location of their camp, they had to actually get the Park County to start the search and rescue. But Sweetgrass County also assisted in the search. And in fact, the location of Aaron's last GPS signal actually showed that Aaron was headed towards Sweetgrass County. Now the strange thing is, as I explained, this is very rocky and rugged terrain up in the mountains, and there's really only one trail that anyone can use to go in and out of this location. But strangely enough, when the Sweetgrass County authorities went up there to help search for Aaron on that trail, there was no sign that anyone or Aaron had passed through there, even though there was fresh snow on the ground and it would have been easy to track him. The first piece of evidence that they were able to uncover was Aaron's boots. They were found on the second day of search on September ninth by a canine unit. But what's strange is that his boots were set perfectly side by side as if they were placed there to be found. And yet again, here's another case of someone removing their boots and their shoes while hiking through this rugged terrain where you would cut your feet up and also there's all the snow on the ground. You're going to want protection on your feet. And near the boots was also a water bladder from like a camelback that was found. And there was also a fire pit with an empty cigarette pack that was burned that was the brand of cigarettes that Aaron smoked. Now, it's not completely strange and unusual that these items were found. However, what is strange is that the area that these items were found had previously been searched the last couple of days by certified level 2 search and rescue technicians. These were people who knew what to look for and they knew exactly what they were doing, yet these items were placed out in the open as if they were placed there to be found by them later on. The search eventually was ended on september twenty second, twenty fourteen. There had been sixty ground searchers, twenty canine teams, and two helicopters flying over. And those items were the only sign of Aaron ever being in the area. Jump ahead exactly nine months after the search ended on june twenty second, twenty fifteen, and a local farmer actually finds Aaron's backpack propped up gently against a tree, and inside of the backpack he had lighters and fire starters, he had food inside, there was a gun and a bow and his hunting license. Nearby there was also a thermos that had some liquid inside still that was just sitting on a rock as if Aaron had sat there. And what's strange is about the location of these items is if you look down into the meadow and the valley below, you can see civilization. So it just really doesn't make sense that Aaron would leave food in his backpack, he would drop his gun and his bow, and he would gently prop his backpack up against a tree, and he would leave his thermos just sitting there. And why didn't he just walk down and get some help? His backpack was found by this farmer who was redoing his fence along his property line to keep his cattle in, so he was not far at all from civilization. It just really doesn't make sense that he would just be looking down and not go get help. Again, it's almost as if these items were just kind of placed out in the open and waiting to be found. On August 8th of 2016, 23 months after his disappearance some of aaron's remains were found a skull pelvis and a femur by a tour group and near the remains aaron's cell phone and jacket was also found but what's strange is that these bones weren't broken the clothing that was found wasn't torn apart there was no sign of an attack or any sign of predation And another strange fact is the distance in which his remains were found. The remains were found 11 air miles from Aaron's last seen location and 6 miles from where his boots were found. If Aaron was struggling with hypothermia or some other illness, why would he carry all of this other supplies such as a bow and gun and backpack an additional six miles after leaving his boots and trekking through sharp rocks it just doesn't make sense and additionally the coroner couldn't come up with the cause of death for aaron because there just wasn't enough remains to go off of these hunter and outdoorsman cases are the ones that really strike me as interesting because these are well-seasoned men Like I said, Aaron would hunt this area every other weekend. He had supply caches stashed around the entire mountains and he knew this area very well. He still had food in his backpack. He still had ammunition and his bow with him. Like he could have protected himself if he came across an animal. So none of this seems to make sense at all. Now, if this topic is as fascinating for you as it is for me, I highly, highly suggest that you guys read some of David Politis' books. They're called Missing 411, and he has nine books out currently, and you can actually pre-order the 10th book that will be coming out soon. I currently only have one of his books called Missing 411 Off the Grid that came out in 2017, but I really would like to get some more of them. And the entire book is all about these missing person cases. You know, there's like one or two cases within three pages so you can just dig through these books look at the facts and just make of it what you will and what's cool about these books is in the back there's like an appendix with all these tables and it shows all the stats and information about the collected data with these reports and i was looking at the stats in the back of my book and there seems to be a bit of an age trend when it comes to these cases specifically younger children With the cases in this book, two-year-olds, there are 75 males and 37 females. Three-year-olds, there are 57 males and 39 females. And four-year-olds, there are 48 males and 10 females. Now, to put those numbers into perspective, 11-year-olds, there are only 9 males and 2 females. 12 year olds there's only eight males and zero females In 13 year olds there's only five males and one female so there certainly seems to be a trend for the younger children and as you could probably tell just based off those numbers males are more likely to experience this in this book there are 104 male cases and 33 female And it's also important to note that this isn't just occurring in the United States. There's actually 15 total countries. And the top four are U.S. with 97 cases, Canada with 16, Australia with 13, and the United Kingdom with five. But one can't help to notice that it seems to be a lot more prevalent in the United States. And I really wonder why that is. I mean, there's a total of 97 cases in this book in the United States, but the next leading country is Canada, with only 16. Why is there such a big gap there? And if this topic is interesting to you, I also suggest you watch the documentary Missing 411 Hunted, and I will leave links to all these books and to the documentaries in the show notes. And Missing 411 Hunted is made by David Politis, and it's a documentary about all of these cases of hunters that have gone missing unexplainably. I did touch on some of the cases included in that movie tonight, but I didn't touch on all of them, and the movie goes into a lot more detail, so I highly recommend you check it out. There is also an older documentary that's just titled Missing 411 that was also made by David And it was produced by his son, but I feel like the newer one, Missing 411 The Hunted, was better made and produced, and it's just a lot better put together. So I highly recommend The Hunted over Just Missing 411. But I will leave links to all these down below. But, anyways, guys, thank you so much for listening to the season finale and for sticking through the season with me. I hope you guys are enjoying the show this far. And I can't wait to hear more from you guys and hear more of your stories. So be sure to keep up to date with me on social media. I will announce when season two will come out. Like I said, I'm shooting for late March, early April to release season two. But just be sure to look out for any more announcements and feel free to reach out to me with any stories that you would like to include in the second season. But that's going to do it for tonight's episode and for the season finale. And just be sure to stay safe out there, especially if you plan on going hiking anytime soon. I probably would not be the last person in line. And be sure to travel in groups. All right, everybody. Take care. Have a good one.